Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 186 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this short topic-driven in-between episode where I'm going to give you my thoughts on a little sliver of the booze world that maybe we don't talk about very often here on the podcast. Don't worry, we've still got more great interview content and even some breaking bloody episodes in the pipeline for you, but I thought I'd give a slightly shorter format a spin and see how you all like it. As the title implies, the topic this episode is about cutting back on drinking, since I know a lot of us have maybe been self-medicating a little more than usual for the past year. I have very specific thoughts on, let's be honest, outright aversions to marathon and highly scheduled booze cleanses like Dry January or Sober October. So we'll get into my thoughts on those, and then I'll propose a very different framework that I've been using over the past few months to curb my overall alcohol intake for the purpose of health and wellness. Quick disclaimer, none of this is intended as medical advice, so make sure you talk to a real live certified doctor before making any changes to your routine. I don't think the medical establishment is going to have any problems with us talking about cutting back on alcohol, but we got to cover all our legal bases here. So now that we've taken care of that little piece of housekeeping, how about we give you the chance to make yourself a drink? This episode's featured mocktail is the Buchan Soda, a.k.a. Kombucha with bubbly water. To make it, you'll need, wait for it guys, kombucha and bubbly water. The kombucha can be homemade or store-bought, and the bubbly water can be anything from club soda to tonic water to flavored seltzer. Add ice to your favorite pint glass, highball glass, or double rocks glass, fill it about one-third with kombucha, then top off with those bubbles and enjoy. What I love about the Buchan Soda as a replacement drink is this. It's got an incredible amount of texture to it, since you're adding bubbles from soda and from the fermented drink, and that fermentation gives a lot of culinary depth and complexity to this highball-esque pairing. All right, maybe it's more of a shandy than a highball, but I think you get the point. Now, I'm not here to try and sell you on the purported health benefits of kombucha. There's plenty of kombucha companies out there that will be more than happy to evangelize for you. I'm in this game for flavor. The kombucha I drink is generally homemade. My wife and I will juice a bunch of fresh citrus that we get from making bitters, then brew up some tea and start feeding our little SCOBY bug that sits in the cabinet. SCOBY, by the way, is an acronym that stands for Stable Colony of Bacteria and Yeast. And yes, it's a little disconcerting in the same way that a sourdough starter is creepily alive, right? But if you can get past that, maintaining a SCOBY allows you to make a batch of kombucha whenever you kind of start running low. And my favorite thing to do is to add flavored seltzer that I think will complement the flavor of that batch. And then I add a few strategic dashes of bitters to round everything out. This is a great afternoon sipper. I drank one while writing this episode, and even though I'm not drinking one now for burpage reasons, it still remains my absolute favorite mocktail to enjoy when I'd like a cocktail, but also want to be kind to my body. 
Over on the show notes page, we'll definitely have a link or two that you can follow to explore some kombucha making resources if you're looking for a little kitchen project to play around with this spring. So now that you know the secrets to my favorite mocktail, let's jump straight into the art and science of cutting back. For a few years now, I've been quietly skeptical about marathon cleanses like Dry January and Sober October. Whenever I see a rhyme or a catchy name being used to sell something to the general public, I'm immediately on alert. For me, it has all the charm and substance of a radio giveaway or Taco Tuesday. The rhyme seems like an excuse to do something that you could do any day or week or month of the year. This is not to say that I have a problem with cleanses in general or large chunks of time spent not imbibing. I've done them myself, and I've actually tended to do them at times of the year that are not October or January. If nothing else, they're interesting experiments that can teach you something about yourself. But in this episode, the key point isn't so much learning about yourself, but rather affecting meaningful and, here's the key, sustainable change in your lifestyle. Those two are related but different things. And I think that trendy cleanse months are actually set up in a way that works against lasting change for a couple of reasons. And here they are. First, they encourage an all-or-nothing mindset rather than a curious or moderate mindset. This is particularly dangerous for me because I have a very immoderate personality. If I'm doing something, I'm going all the way. I'm going big, which means that the days and weeks following my month of sobriety are very probably going to be filled with very liberal drinking, subsidized by the fact that I just martyred myself by taking a whole month off. To me, this sort of forced privation generally leads to bad behavior with bad logic to back it up, and it reminds me of a conversation I had on the podcast a while back with author Mark Forsyth, stemming from his book A Short History of Drunkenness. Mark draws a distinction between wet and dry societies and how they tend to act. Here's a clip from our interview. The the question of moderation is often a question of, are you drinking all at once in one little binge, or are you drinking gradually over the day? Anthropologists call this a wet culture, which is a happy drinking culture where you have a little something in the morning, a little something with lunch, a little something. It's the Mediterranean drinking culture, we also call it. And the opposite of that is uh, what's often referred to as a dry culture, which doesn't mean no drinking. What that means is that you do all your drinking in a short burst at some given moment. So Britain is usually defined as a dry drinking culture insofar as we do it in a short burst on a Friday night and you, you drink everything you can. The Egyptians seem to have drunk in heavy bursts. And it's a large amount, as I say, drink till you vomit, you know, really hit it until until it hurts. That doesn't mean that overall their alcohol consumption might be that different from, and there's another slightly misleading thing a lot of people would have heard, which is that it's completely true that if you were a medieval monk, you would have a ration of beer per day, usually gallon, which is eight pints of beer which is actually not that much if you're drinking all day. I've, I've tried this myself. So if you get eight cans, eight large cans of beer, have one with breakfast, then one about two hours later, two hours later, it's, it's every two hours. And you're not completely sober and you probably shouldn't drive, but you're never drunk. It's just right. something spread out over the day. So the fact that medieval monks had a ration of 
a gallon of beer a day, which makes it see us sort of think they're all just um, you know dancing around utterly sloshed all the time is 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 wrong. They they that that I mean they could get sloshed obviously, but they, largely it's about how you do it and do you do it in strong bursts or do you do it in uh, slow gradual bits? And um, the Egyptians were strong burst drinkers. It was it was hardcore. There's also an interesting anecdote that I think is a pretty nice illustration of what lengths humans will go to in order to permit themselves a drink in an otherwise dry society setting. Here's Mark. Islam has a very tricky relationship with alcohol. It should be pointed out, though, that the fact that the Quran finally does ban alcohol in the Hadith, which is the sort of the, the list of the sayings of the prophets which aren't uh, in, in the Quran, uh, is really, really against alcohol. That really didn't stop the Muslim world from drinking for most of history. I mean, Iran is where an awful lot of the earliest wine ever found was made. It was a uh, a massive wine-producing place, which um, Arabia hadn't been. So where, where, where Islam started in Mecca and Medina, they, they'd never been big drinkers there. But you get into Iran, Iraq, everyone just kept drinking. What happened was it turned it into the classic example of what I was talking about earlier, a dry culture, a place where you binge drink quickly and secretly rather than publicly and relaxedly drinking all day so there's this kind of it, roughly in the way i think that people take cocaine at a lot of parties today you know they run off to a back room don't let anyone see and then come back and of course everybody knows what <laughs> what's just happened and also it means that there isn't much of a question on of the taste of it it's a question of how much you can neck and how quickly there's a lovely little um description i found of it's from, I think, Syria in about 15th century, where a traveller describes how they would they would get their, their drinks and then just before drinking, they would scream as loud as they could and then down the drink, down the wine, usually. And the reason for this was that screaming was meant to dislodge the soul from the body briefly. And so if you went, ah, for a moment, your soul would be outside of your body, at which point you could neck the booze without there being any sin involved. And either oh way, my. I know it's beautiful. Either way, in, uh, importantly, in in Islam, you can ask for forgiveness, just as you can in Christianity, and and uh, Allah is very merciful. What you can't do is ask for forgiveness whilst you're still planning to repeat it. So, oddly enough, though there was a lot of drinking going on in the, amongst the Muslims, it had to be made by non-Muslims. But most of it, we go back to the days of the caliphate, every city had the, you know, the Muslim majority, but then there'd be the Greek quarter, the Armenian quarter, the Jewish quarter. So they were all producing lots of booze. And and uh, anyone from the Muslim quarter or the Muslim majority could wander over to that bit of town when they were feeling sinful and drink it and then repent the next day and that's all fine. What I'm saying here is that I'm a proponent of a wet or Mediterranean drinking culture precisely because it's the sort of moderating influence I benefit from in my personal life. As an immoderate person, I aspire to moderation, which is why I tend to avoid all-or-nothing drinking cleanses. You might not be like me, which is fine, but I feel like coming out against dry January is a bit of a faux pas in today's cocktail culture, so I figured I'd back it up with some evidence on my end. Now, the other reason why I'm not crazy about fad alcohol fasts is that they imply virtue without really defining it. Clearly, if you take part in the monotheistic capitalistic culture of winter holidays in the United States, then you're probably going to be putting on a few extra pounds 
over Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year's Eve, and other festive occasions like Friendsgivings, holiday parties, and cookie swaps. That means if you want to stay in shape, you've either got some preparation to do on the front end or some atonement to do on the back end, and maybe a little bit of both. So is it a coincidence that sober October and dry January perfectly bookend this waistband extending season? Probably not. Here's the landscape. We've got a sober period before we go absolutely hog wild on the turkey and stuffing at Thanksgiving, my personal favorite culinary holiday. Then we have a six-week period when we permit ourselves to break out rich and fattening recipes that are reserved for this very festive time of year. Then we have a night where we get drunk and welcome in a new calendar year. And then we have another month of self-flagellation and largely failed attempts at New Year's resolutions because we're disgusted with ourselves, guys. And we're going to make things radically different next year. We promise. We promise it'll happen this time. And then it doesn't. In general, I found that you get healthy the same way you get unhealthy, which is little by little. And so measures that affect the small everyday decisions that you make tend to have much more meaningful effects than avoiding single large-scale health events like a calorie-heavy drunken New Year's Eve. The bookended fast months on either side of November and December are marketed as what we might consider enthymemes, which are arguments that skip over one or more premises based on the assumption that cultural knowledge will reliably fill in the gaps. Here's a traditional example of an enthymeme. Premise, Socrates is human. Conclusion, therefore Socrates is mortal. What's being skipped over here is the premise that all humans are mortal. But because we're all humans, we intuitively understand this. So it's not a major problem to skip over that little piece of unnecessary information. But what if I were to make the following case? Premise. Sober October and dry January are healthy for you because they allow your body to detoxify itself. Conclusion. Sober October and dry January are therefore virtuous events to participate in. Now, I would argue that the premise that's missing from this conversation is that we do a lot of debaucherous things during November and December and explain them away with various excuses. Tradition, religion, family, stress, etc., and the reason why I have a problem with the virtuousness of a sober October or a dry January isn't because they're not good things to do, but because we're all collectively pretending that they somehow absolve us of the need to moderate our intake during the holidays. I know none of these things are stated, but that's the nature of enthymemes. Something's always implied. And what's being implied is almost always what you need to dig into if you want to get to the heart of the issue. So to summarize, I'm suspicious of sober October and dry January, not because I think cleanses aren't in some way valuable, but because they're engineered around our own cultural comfort with self-delusion and our perhaps misguided belief that the body can be balanced like a checkbook, two months of saintly behavior in exchange for two months of overconsumption. It makes me kind of admire those Syrians screaming in the desert for the sleek and parsimonious design of their self-delusion. They didn't have to waste two months behaving well like we often do. They just violently expelled their souls and got straight to drinking. And that is my kind of self-delusion. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals and you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need near country provisions in your life. 
head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. I remember once being told, after complaining about something, that it's not very helpful to just complain. You need to offer up a solution if you're coming to the table as an adult. So, this past January, while I was listening to a lot of virtue signaling on social media about going dry, I decided to start plotting my solution. For me, it comes in the form of a daily personal accountability journal, which is not so much a journal as it is a checklist bounded by a couple of intentions. I'm going to describe it here give you some rationales for why I engineered it the way I did, and of course, link to an example sheet that you can download on the show notes page. It starts at the top with a date. This is useful because especially when you work from home or own a small business like I do, it's easy to lose track of what day it is. I like the date. I think it helps keep things organized. After that, I have what I call an intention for the day, which is exactly what it sounds like, and it's a form of mindfulness practice in that it asks you to slow down and put this day in context with all the rest of the days. You take a little internal temperature check by asking, how am I feeling about today? And then you can write down an intention that predicts what might lay in store for you while also making a plan for how you'll handle it. On April 1st of this year, my intention was simply find things to enjoy amidst all the running around. Clearly, As I was filling out my daily accountability journal, I realized I was going to be running a lot of errands all over the city that day, and I wanted to make a conscious effort to locate some moments of calm or delight during an otherwise jam-packed day. The day before that, the intention was, have a good podcast interview. Do good for the body. Clearly, that day was less packed for me, so I decided to really emphasize a couple of aspects of my day that I felt were really important and that I wanted to do really well. Because... I have this journal-style checklist formatted on a single 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, and because there's very little other writing on the page besides check marks, the intention for the day is something your eyes will run across again and again when you interact with the sheet. So it's almost like a little tuning fork that can remind you to reset if you're starting to feel scattered. This is just one of the fun little affordances of this accountability tool. After the intention... The bulk of the sheet is taken up by a checklist that I chose to split up into four categories, circadian health, physical health, professional health, and family health. I start with circadian health because this is going to be the first thing you fill out in the morning in that it refers to your behavior the previous night. The data points here are bedtime before 1030, wake up before 630, and zero day on previous day. These are the hallmarks of a healthy sleeping routine, a reasonably early bedtime, a solid amount of high-quality sleep, and a reasonably early wake-up time. In the physical health section, let me run down the touch points I try to revisit daily, knowing that rarely am I going to hit more than one of the major exercise options in a given day. We have 64 ounces of water consumed. That's a half gallon. One large serving of vegetables, salad, or assorted cooked. Full-serving multivitamins. I use vitamin code for men. Three plus mile run or five mile hike. 100 push ups. 
20 minutes stretching, 20 minutes meditation, gym workout, which for obvious reasons hasn't been a super viable option recently. In the professional health category, I have read 10 plus pages or one major chapter of an important book, write, record, or schedule a podcast or make major progress, generate, sell, or fulfill a meaningful amount of inventory, send one to three emails you've been putting off. Lastly, in the family health category, the list items include do something thoughtful for or fun with my wife, provide meaningful exercise and or training for the dog, and do two daily chores or one major project around the house. That is a complete rundown of the list. As you can tell, it's stuff that's important to me. You might have a completely different list, but the question remains, how is this a tool to cut down on drinking? It just sounds like a to-do list. Well, in order to gamify this list a little, I assign point values to each item according to how important or difficult it might be to accomplish. So for example, most of the time-consuming exercise stuff counts for two points, whereas the easy stuff like vitamins and water drinking counts for one point. At the bottom of the page, I have an end-of-day tally with a key that ties the point count to a number of drinks allowed. So for example, less than 10 points equals no drinks, 10 to 14 points equals one drink, and 15 points or more earns me two drinks. Finally, the very last item on the sheet is another kind of intention. It simply asks, what am I drinking to celebrate? This is another mindfulness and gratitude exercise that makes the process of making a drink a bit more special and reminds me to really savor it rather than mindlessly guzzling. So now that you know what my daily accountability journal looks like in all its simplicity, let me tell you about some of the psychological and physical levers that I'm pulling to try and make a healthier lifestyle. First off, if you're trying to cut back on drinking, it seems like you probably like drinking, so why not use it as a high-value reward for getting things done? We do this with the dog. For certain types of treats like ice cubes or carrots, eh, he's kind of motivated, but with others like salmon skin or chicken gizzards, it's kind of it's kind of gross. But for those, he's your guy. He'll do pretty much anything you want. So it makes sense to try and reward yourself with something that you really like. If you want to use something different for your reward, go for it. This process, this tool is extremely customizable. So use the reward that you think will work best for you. Next, there's something about having a physical list in front of you that you have to interact with a number of times throughout the day that keeps you much more on track than a digital list or an app on your phone. This checklist is part of my physical workspace. I print out a sheet first thing in the morning, record my circadian health and my daily intention over coffee, and then check back in with it five to ten times throughout the day. For example, if I need a break from, say, writing a podcast episode, I'll stand up, grab the checklist, and see if there's something I can knock out in the meantime, like a set of push-ups or one of those two daily chores I need to knock out. This frequent exposure to the many bite-sized tasks you want to get done every day really allows you to keep yourself honest and not put them off. So I highly recommend printing off a physical sheet that will have a real presence in your daily routine if you want to get the most out of it. Next, you'll notice that my list is filled with three basic types of items. Things that are easy to do, but also easy to let slip through the cracks, like water, vitamins, full serving of vegetables, daily chores, then there are things that are important to do but easy to fall behind on, like getting consistently good sleep, staying on top of podcast scheduling and sales. And then there's 
things that take time but have an oversized impact on quality of life, like exercising the dog, doing something thoughtful for or fun with my wife, and getting a major dose of exercise each day. The first set of things represents easy wins. I can rack up lots of points quickly by doing these easy little tasks, most of which involve consuming something. So after a 10-second dose of vitamins, I get a point. I feel productive, and I just made sure that it wasn't going to slip through the cracks that day. The more you check off, the better you feel, which makes you more motivated to tackle the harder to accomplish tasks. It gives you a little boost. Maybe for you, vitamins aren't where you want to focus, but maybe it's flossing or something else that you consistently fail at, but ideally shouldn't be. It doesn't matter. Just make sure you have a sprinkling of easy wins on your list and you'll be off to a great start. Now, I will say that if you use this approach seriously, you're probably going to end up making some structural changes or acquiring some tools that enhance your ability to get things done. In my case, I decided that I finally wanted to bite the bullet and get a Fitbit to help track my sleep quality and exercise. I also decided that I needed to get some books heading my way if I wanted to read more, which meant a trip to Amazon and browsing the DC Library's online offerings. So since starting this daily accountability practice, I've been supplementing my circadian and physical health metrics with data from the Fitbit and also tending a growing list of books that I want to read. These things were not in my life before the list, so they're minor structural changes, but changes nonetheless. A couple last things I want to mention here. First, one of the most valuable things about this list is that if you get a week or two worth of sheets and you go through them, you can really quickly identify those things you consistently crush and also the list items that you tend to avoid. So for example, if six months down the road, I realize that I haven't missed a single day of taking vitamins, maybe that means it's officially burned into my brain that I need to do that, but I've done a comparably awful job at prioritizing stretching or meditation, for example. Well, maybe in this case, delete the vitamins, and incentivize the meditation by making it worth more points. If you assign it a higher value, then you're more likely to give it your attention. So make sure that you continue to track your progress on these, even if informally, and make revisions to your accountability journal when you find that there's something that you want to kind of change or put more focus on. This leads me to one other important piece of advice. Make sure you give your list some time for refinement. When I first started doing this daily accountability journal, I was drinking a gallon of water each day, twice as much as I drink currently. And honestly, it wasn't worth it. I spent my entire day running to the bathroom to the point where I was being less productive and feeling less good. I wasn't getting any health benefits from my gallon of water, so I ended up dialing it back. I'm much happier with 64 ounces, which is your standard eight glasses a day. Also, as my wife and I started doing more hikes with our dog, I was able to make the connection that a five-mile hike with lots of elevation change was giving me just as much exercise as a three-mile run, so I made that item more flexible. And the great thing about doing one of these hikes is that it counts for two points worth of exercise, as well as a point for exercising the dog and a point for doing something fun with my wife. So by simply giving myself options, like the run or the hike, I can decide which is going to be the best option on a given day. I'm not saying you should make all your tasks stackable like this one, but it's kind of fun when you can make progress on multiple items at once. A more trivial example 
of this might be taking vitamins while eating salad for lunch and drinking water while reading a book. I can do all four of those things pretty much simultaneously and not at the expense of one another. So why not stack them? Since picking up this daily accountability practice, I've definitely been more mindful in my day-to-day activities. I've made really great progress on the sleep front, which was something I used to be good at before starting a small business. So it feels nice to start correcting a part of my life that's definitely been neglected in recent years. And for me, having this list is an almost foolproof antidote for boredom, because if the question is, well, what should I do now? Chances are the accountability journal probably still has a few boxes that need to be checked. Of course, the last kind of important thing here is it has indeed helped me to cut down on my drinking. And not in a way that feels like a punishment, but but rather in a way that I feel content with what I've taken into my body that day and, and just don't feel the need to use a drink to try and relax. I've sufficiently designed my day in a way that puts all the feel-good chemicals in my body that I need, and I I simply don't crave it anymore. And so, to me, it's a different type of progress than what you would achieve in a 30-day fast, for example. I want to reiterate that I chose this approach precisely because I have an immoderate personality, and I wanted to work a sense of routine and moderation into my life. In French, the phrase for I am happy is je suis content, I am content. And contentedness, I think, is a difficult thing to achieve in general, let alone during a stressful pandemic. This contentedness is exactly what Sober October, Dry January, and the orgastic holiday period in between stand in opposition to. You're always vacillating between extremes rather than locating and sinking into the rhythms that make every day happy and productive. So to sum up the mission the twofold mission of the Daily Accountability Journal. It is to build healthy practices into your life so that eventually they become part of who you are and to design your day around things that will make you happy and help you achieve your goals. For me, the goal was cutting back on drinking, but I'm sure you could use this approach to affect lots of different types of change in your life. I'm Modern Barkart CEO Eric Koslick. I hope this was at least a little bit helpful in thinking about booze fasts and other ways to drink smarter and healthier. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again soon. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Barkhart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarkhart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And 
keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed and a little bit of life hacking magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.